A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 1015 a.m., You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Hey guys, thanks for joining me again in Bible study today. I have a question for you. What do you think comes to people's minds across the country, across the United States, and I'm I'm primarily thinking about places outside the Bible Belt, I guess, but maybe even in the Bible Belt these days. But when they hear the word Christian, Christian, what do you think comes to their minds? You might want to pause this and think about it a little bit, come up with an answer of some kind. I think what comes to at least some people's minds is a mental picture of someone who's not a very good thinker, (laughs) you know what I mean? Maybe a little bit of a kook. (laughs) Maybe somebody that gets riled up emotionally pretty quickly, you know, kind of flies with their emotions. But mentally, maybe kind of slow, a little bit of a, I don't know, dodo brain or something like that. Somebody that doesn't know how to think, somebody who's afraid to think. And I guess I have to be honest and say that through the years, I really have known some people who call themselves Christians who seem to come frighteningly close to fitting that description. I hope it doesn't fit you. But while in our day, it may be a common misconception for people to think that Christians don't think very much or very well or very deeply, biblically speaking, it's certainly a misconception that Christians are not thinking people. And I want us to get that clear today. God makes it clear in his word, we are supposed to be people who think and who think carefully and who think, well, he's given us a brain, he's given us a mind, and he wants us to use it well. And unfortunately, we have some public school systems across the land that are training our kids not to use their minds very well. They're learning that they can get the grades they want or get the accolades they want without too much hard discipline thinking. That's not okay. (laughs) Peter has something to say about that in his first letter. The Apostle Peter, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. So I want us to read some of that together right now. We'll start with verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now there's far, far more in this passage of scripture than we'll even begin to come close to covering, but I want to look at two or three things here uh, and focus on them and let God speak to our hearts from this, this passage. First of all, look at verse 13. In verse 13, God gives us three direct commands. Two of them relate to how we use our minds. The first command is in the first six words of the verse, therefore preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. <laughs> And, and whenever you see the word therefore, you notice the sentence started with therefore. <laughs> it's always a good idea to stop and look at the context. Look at the verses that came before this one, the preceding verses. Try to understand what the therefore is. Therefore. And when we look at the preceding verses here in First Peter chapter 1, we can see what this therefore is therefore. We can put it all together. So let's quickly look through these verses. We don't have time to spend too much time here. We want to see what the therefore is therefore. So he's saying in verse 2, since we are the elect of God, and also in verse 2, since we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and also in verse 2 he says, since we are set apart by the Holy Spirit, in verse 3, since we are born again to a living hope. Verse 3 also, since Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 4, since we have an incorruptible inheritance. Verse 5, since we are being kept by God's power. In verse 5, since we will one day be glorified. In verse 7, since Jesus is coming again, and we know that. In verse 10, since the prophets spoke of these things. Verse 11, since the prophets desired to understand it, but they couldn't. And verse 12, since God has revealed them to us, therefore, on the basis of all of this, he said, we must prepare our minds for action. <laughs> you remember how the old King James translation translated this? Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a very powerful picture. In those days, men wore long robes. They hung down to their feet. Those robes were fine and very comfortable for just walking around in and living in in general, but that was during normal, non-stressful activities. But when something stressful happened, when strenuous effort requiring action came into their lives, when it became necessary to work, or when it became necessary to fight, or when it became necessary to run, <laughs> those robes got in the way. They were a hindrance. So they would simply gather them up and tuck them into their belts. And we find this going on all the way through Scripture. For example, in Exodus chapter 12, you remember the children of Israel were commanded to eat the very first Passover meal, and he said, you need to have your loins girded, shoes on your feet, staff in your hand. <laughs> Why? Because that very night they were going to have to travel very far, very fast. They had to get ready to move out. They had to get ready for action. 
So they had to gird up their loins. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we're reading about Elijah. You may remember this, verse 46. Elijah outran King Ahab, even though King Ahab was in his chariot. The Bible says Elijah girded up his loins. Why? So he could run. He could run fast. So the picture is get ready for some action. Get ready for some work. Get ready to run. So in our day, you don't hear that metaphor very much, do you? We don't talk like that. We don't say gird up your loins much unless you're a pretty Bible-oriented person. You may use it some if you've been in the Word a lot. And it's because we don't wear those kind of robes, those long flowing robes. But we have similar metaphors. Sometimes we'll say, better roll up your sleeves. And we don't necessarily mean literally do that. I mean, we just mean get ready to work, get ready for action. Or maybe you'll hear the phrase, get ready to roll. <laughs> you, know, you know you're about to get into some actions. You know, something's about to happen. Maybe fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> we know something's about to happen. But here's the important thing in this verse. We are to gird up the loins, or if you want to say roll up your sleeves or fasten your seatbelt, of your mind, <laughs> of our minds. We're not to be lazy-brained. We're to get our minds ready for action. There's mental work to be done. For Christians, there are mental battles to be fought. For Christians, guys, there's a lot of it. Some of you may have heard, I've probably mentioned it to you, of a, of a method of training people to share the gospel we used to use several decades ago called Evangelism Explosion. You remember that? And many years ago, many of us Christians worked our way through this personal evangelism program. James Kennedy, he died in 2007, but he was pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, had put together this method. It's a pretty comprehensive method, actually, for training and sharing the gospel, evangelism training. But it was a training program that required some memorization. First of all, you had to memorize an outline for sharing the gospel. And you also had to memorize several passages of Scripture. And you had to memorize several illustrations that illustrated those passages of Scriptures and those points in the outline. The outline involved a couple of diagnostic questions. One of them was, have you come to the place in your personal spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? You have eternal life. And the follow-up question to that was, suppose you were to die today and found yourself standing before God, and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And most people answer that question with, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. And so we learned how to help people think about it a little bit, to help them think through how, what they might say to God. It also involved five points of the gospel, and each of those points had two subpoints. So heaven was the first point. It's a free gift, cannot be earned or deserved. Man, he's a sinner, cannot save himself. God loves us. God is a God of love, but God hates sin. He is a just and righteous and holy God. Christ, we had to think about who he is, and we also had to think about what he did and understand those things so we could explain them to people. And then, of course, the word faith. We learned what it is not. There's some things that people call faith that really aren't faith, and what it really is, biblically speaking. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of the outline. So, and, and for each of those 10 sub-points, though, there were verses to memorize, and there were illustrations to memorize, and there were transitions to get from one to the next. 
If you're interested in this, by the way, I've got a little more detailed explanation of this method for sharing the gospel on our website. If you'd like to watch it or listen to it, you can. I share it with the kids in our Warriors of Christ class at Cross Creek. And there was more to it than that. And I'm not, I'm not giving it justice, really. There was a learning how to help people pray a prayer of commitment, learning some follow-up procedures so that they realize it's not just a matter of making a quick decision, but building a life around Christ, building disciples. Took a lot of work. You can see, Kenny, I mean, that's the point I'm trying to get you to see here is took some discipline. People who got into this thing had to gird up the loins of their minds for a while. The way we did it in those days, we'd have teams of two or three people, and each one of us who was already trained would recruit one or two others, if we could, two, to be part of our team. And then over a period of several months, I think it was 16 weeks, every single week we would meet usually on a Thursday evening. And on that Thursday evening, the two new trainees who had been recruited by the person who already knew the gospel and knew how to share it, had to recite the memory work for that week to their trainer. And, every, and whether there's verses or whether it's the outline or whether there's illustrations, you know, they had different, every week there was a new assignment to memorize. Now, if you're thinking about this, I imagine you can already understand it kind of causes separation between people because there were a lot of people who started the program, but some of them, for whatever reason, weren't able or willing to gird up the loins of their minds. Some of them felt like they were too busy or, or it was more than they thought it was going to be or they were too tired or maybe some of them thought, I'm too old, my brain doesn't work very well anymore. Maybe they were too preoccupied with other things to do the memory work, and so they just graciously bowed out. Now, I'm not trying to be ugly about these people. They were sweet people. They just weren't quite able or willing to obey the command in this verse, gird up the loins of your mind. I, I know I may have sounded critical there. I don't really mean to be. I, I didn't love these people any less because they didn't continue in the program, and I didn't criticize them because some of them had life conflicts. It made it really difficult for them. It may not have been the best time for them to try to take up that challenge and that responsibility. <laughs> and if I'm honest, I have to admit, there have been plenty of times in my own life when I wasn't as mentally disciplined as I knew I should have been. That's pretty common for all of us, don't you think? So I'm not trying to run these people down. They're wonderful people. I just want us to try to understand that sometimes the Christian life, if we're going to really go on with the Lord, if we're going to grow stronger in Christ, if we're going to get equipped to stay in the battle, it requires some mental work, some mental discipline. You see, there are many, many people who say it's not too, too difficult to go to church. They, they, they like going to church. They enjoy the music. They may enjoy the sermon. They enjoy the fellowship. Maybe attend Christian meetings like we do, you know, like Sunday school or Bible studies and prayer meetings and things like that. Sometimes they find it pleasant to listen to good podcasts or maybe good Christian radio programs or good Christian TV programs. I'm talking about the real thing. I know there's a lot of fake stuff that calls itself Christian. And that's good. I mean, I, I do that myself. I love to go to church. I love to go to Bible study. I love to go to prayer meetings. I love to listen to good biblical teaching and preaching and podcasts and things like that myself. But listen, stay with me here. I think most of us know and can agree it's very easy for us to let that good teaching just kind of roll off our minds like water off the back of a duck unless 
we gird up the loins of our minds. It's one thing to hear. It's another thing to learn, to memorize, to absorb, to apply God's word to our lives so that we can turn around and share it with somebody else effectively. You see what I'm saying? Do you remember the fact that the people Peter wrote this letter to, we're talking about 1 Peter now, the letter that we call 1 Peter in our New Testament. These people were suffering. They'd been scattered away from their homes by persecution. They had to flee their homes and they were in a strange place. They were aliens and strangers in this new place they were in. And God's telling them through Peter that to handle these tests they're going through, to keep this godly attitude, to keep a focus on Christ, during times of great difficulty in life, requires mental work, requires mental energy, requires mental action. They needed to be memorizing God's word, God's commands, God's promises. They needed to know how to use God's word effectively. It's, it's sad, I think, how many of us, and I say us because I'm including myself here, how many of us can get kind of depressed in the Christian life. We can get discouraged. We can get down in the dumps. And if we're not careful, even then, we won't do the work of memorizing God's promises that were given to us by God himself and designed for us by God to help us during those very difficult times. But it's especially during times of pressure and stress. And guys, we're going to be facing a lot of that. I'm telling you, all of us Christians are. But we need to have our, the loins of our minds girded up. We need to do the mental work of memorizing God's words, especially important at, at, and during those times. And I've had people get a little bit irritated at me because I suggest <laughs> that kind of mental discipline. Maybe I don't do it as graciously as I should. I pray that I might. But if they're going through emotional difficulty or depression, you know, one of the best things they can do is start memorizing God's word. And they think, I can't memorize scripture right now. I'm too depressed. <laughs> I shouldn't be expected to have to do that right now. And I admit it's much better if we memorize these verses ahead of time, <laughs> get them in our hearts and minds before the crisis. So when the crisis comes, we're already prepared and the Holy Spirit can bring them to mind. But if we don't, or even if we do during the time of crisis, there's a lot of mental work that we need to do, guys. We need to gird up the loins of our minds so we can respond to that crisis and every crisis the way God wants us to respond to these crises. Now, I know some of you are like me. We're getting old. <laughs> and, and I know, believe me, I know it gets harder and harder to gird up the loins of our minds. I mean, it's not just our joints and our internal organs and our skin that's beginning to sag and get old and aged and, and headed towards death. Our minds are too, you know, it, it's, it's harder sometimes to think. It's hard to remember things, but we must not make excuses. I don't care what our ages are. We need to be girding up the loins of our mind. I know our bodies aren't what they used to be. Our minds aren't what they used to be, but as long as the Lord gives us bodies and minds that work at all, <laughs> we need to be girding them up the best we can. I know we might not be able to do that quite as well as when we were teenagers or young adults, but let's just make up our minds. We're going to use our minds, what's left of them, <laughs> for his glory until he calls us home, until one of these days we get that new glorified body <laughs> with a glorified brain and mind. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. 
just ask God for help. You know, it takes time, right? It takes time. We've got to set aside the time to gird up the loins of our minds. Now I want us to look at verses 14 through 16. But before we do, I want to use your imagination just for a minute, okay? Hope this doesn't happen anytime soon to us, but it might, or something similar might, but we can be thankful it hasn't yet. But let's suppose that we're meeting in a, in a Bible study somewhere, maybe at Sunday school at church. And while we're meeting and while we're intently studying God's Word, and I'm up at the front maybe teaching and I'm telling you what's going on in the God's Word, all of a sudden we hear a noise out in the hallway and suddenly a, a team of men burst into the room and they're wearing uniforms and carrying rifles. And behind them there's a big crowd of people following them. And one of the men who seems to be the leader just barges in the room, tells me to shut up, move out of the way. And he says, all right, from now on, being a biblical Christian is illegal here. We've had our people following each of you for months. I want all of you to stay right where you are. Nobody's going anywhere right now. Stay right where you are. Stay away from that door. <laughs> then he pushes me out of the way. He puts a chair up in front of us. And then he sits down in it and lays his rifle across his knees and says, okay, one at a time. And one by one, the soldiers force each one of us to come up before this self-proclaimed military judge. And as the first one of us comes before him, the military judge, so-called, says, Who's the witness for this guy? Someone from the crowd says, I am, sir. I've conducted the normal extensive electronic surveillance of his life. We followed him around for a long time. I think this one's okay. He's really one of us. I didn't detect any real evidence that he's a Christian. I mean, I know he attends these meetings from time to time. But other than that, I don't, I don't see any difference from him and us. And the judge says, okay, you're free to go. Get out of here. Next. <laughs> who's, the, who's the witness for this one? And somebody else in the crowd says, I am, sir. And I'm afraid this was for real. She starts her day reading the Bible. She talks with God a lot. She's always talking to people about Jesus. She brings Jesus in the conversation all the time, talks about the Bible with people. Sometimes I've seen her singing songs of praise when she's in the car alone. and She makes time to study her Bible quite a bit. She's even memorized some verses. I mean, whole nine yards. She's, she seems to be one of them. So, so this self-proclaimed military judge is furious, and he says, take her away, and they remove her from the building. <laughs> now, you can see where I'm going with this, right? Our turn's coming. The question is, when our turn comes, will there be enough evidence to convict us? And even though the outcome might immediately seem pretty bad, hopefully there will be. <laughs> hopefully there will be enough evidence. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the lust or passions of your formal ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's very clear and concise right here. He's commanding us in no uncertain terms to be holy. He says it in verse 15. He says it again in verse 16. Be holy. He says it clearly. No way to misunderstand what he's saying here. Be holy. Now, we have to understand what the word holy means, of course. And I guess today there can be some confusion about the meaning of the word. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word holy. When I was younger, we used to have a terminology for a fellow that was 
maybe kind of a goody goody two shoes kind of guy, you know. I mean, he just always seemed to think he was better than everybody else. And we called him a Holy Joe. Did you ever hear that term before? And nobody really wanted to be called a Holy Joe. That was something nobody wanted to be. Uh, if we, if it almost seemed like if there was something we did not want to be, it was holy. We just didn't understand the word, of course. But it sounded too spiritual. It seemed like uh, these holy people were focused too much on spiritual things. Maybe it sounded like we weren't really grounded in reality. Did you ever hear anybody say something like he or she, depending on who they're talking about, is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? I used to hear that when I was younger a lot too. And they were talking about what we might have been calling a Holy Joe kind of person. But I think what we meant by that was maybe somebody who was artificially kind of sanctimonious, tried to make a show of being maybe artificially pious, kind of a fake, maybe a hypocritical kind of guy, making a show of being righteous, maybe perceive him or herself to be better than everybody else, kind of a pride problem there. I, I don't know. A lot of people also associate the word holy with the word righteous. The, the two do work closely together, uh, but in their minds, to be holy simply means to be morally good. And of course, there's truth to that, but it really doesn't get to the fundamental meaning of the word. It's, it's kind of like a secondary meaning or an outcome of the fundamental meaning. At, at its root, to be holy simply means to be separate, to be different, to be set apart by God for his purposes, to be more and more like Jesus. So being holy involves becoming more and more righteous as well and receiving the righteousness of Christ and letting him work that out through our lives. In verse 16, we read God himself is holy. And it doesn't simply mean that he's righteous, you see. It doesn't simply mean he's without sin. Of course, he is. That's included. It's, it, but it basically means he's totally different. He's separate from everything he's created, from all his creatures. He's in a class all by himself. No one else is all powerful. No one else is all wise. No one else loves like God loves. No one else exists from eternity past to eternity future. No one else is righteous in all of his ways. He's unique. He's different. He's separate. In verse 16, he has a quotation. He says, you shall be holy for I'm holy. It's actually from Leviticus chapter 11. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And of course, here he's talking to the Israelites. He's commanding them, you need to be holy. You've got to be different. You're separate from all these other people living around you, all these pagans that you're moving in with. You know, they're living all around you, but you're different. You're not like them. It's interesting to note the context of this command. God's just been giving them elaborate instructions concerning clean and unclean meats. Why did God give them certain kinds of meat to eat and say, this is clean, you can eat it, and others were not clean, they could not eat it? Well, it wasn't primarily to keep them healthy, although it may have helped keep them help healthy, but it was primarily to keep them holy to keep them separated from these pagan people all around them who were eating those meats. God says, you're going to be different. I'm going to give you several commands to make it clear to everybody around you're different. So that would include things like the Sabbath, uh, holy days, dietary laws, circumcision. You've heard me say this before. I know we've talked about it before, but, but because so many people today 
even so-called Christians are very ignorant of the Old Testament. They can get confused with this. In the Old Testament, we do find God's great moral law, of course, Ten Commandments, but we also find these laws designed to keep Israel separate. Sometimes we call them the holiness code. You don't want to get those confused. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, he says this, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I've set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So he's making it very, very clear here what the purpose of these laws were to keep them separated, to make them holy. He didn't want them to be like other people. He wanted to be separated. Why? So that he could use these separated people, these holy people, these Israelites, to give the rest of the world his word. That's where we got scripture. He used the Israelites to give us his word. And, of course, to send us his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, descended from one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah, through these people. And in the Old Testament, in these passages we're looking at, even the pots and pans that were used in the tabernacle and in the temple, they were called holy pots and pans. Now, obviously, pots and pans can't be righteous, uh, but they can be set apart for God's use. So God was saying, these are holy. These are, these are separate. These are different. Priest, you can't fry your bacon. Well, not bacon, I guess. You can't fry your steak and eggs in these pots and pans. They are holy. So I think it's pretty clear the, the primary fundamental meaning of the word holy is to be different or to be separate. And here in 1 Peter, God commands those of us who are Christians to be separate, just as he commanded the Israelites to be different. We're to be different from those around us. Verse 14 gives us a, a kind of handle to understand how we are to be different. And he does it by means of contrast. He contrasts life of a non-Christian with the life of a Christian. So he says in verse 14 that before you became a Christian, you were ignorant. You simply didn't understand the truth. Much less did you live by it. You didn't even understand it. You were ignorant. So before a person becomes a Christian, he really doesn't know what life's all about. He doesn't know why he's here. He's ignorant. He doesn't know where he's going. Or he may have a PhD, but he's still ignorant. A non-Christian tends to be just totally wrapped up in himself. It's all about him. His life's all about him. And he has a very confused, deceived way of thinking, even though he doesn't maybe feel confused. Here's how it might work. Just, just again, let's use our imagination. Let's, let's suppose we've got a non-Christian friend. We're going to call him John Satan's son. And if you ask John why he gets up in the morning, his answer might be, well, i got to go to work. <laughs> if I didn't have to go to work, I'd, I'd definitely not be in a hurry to get up. You say, well, why do you have to go to work? And he might say, well, I've got to make money. You say, well, why do you have to have money? And he might look at you and say, well, you're, you're kind of weird, but I've got I to buy things. I've got to buy food to eat, for one thing. I've got to pay the rent. I've got to pay the bills. And if you say, well, why do you have to buy food to eat? He'll say, look, I've got to eat to keep my strength up. I got, if I'm going to stay alive, I've got to eat, right? You say, well, why do you need strength? He says, well, I, I need strength so I can get up in the morning. Uh, why? So I can go to work, so I can make money, so I can buy food, so I can keep my strength, so I can go to work. So, 
You see the rat race, don't you? He may be very brilliant in the world's eyes. He may have advanced degrees, but if he's living in ignorance, and if you study his life closely to see what is it that motivates him day to day just to live life, it's probably summed up in the word in verse 14 that's translated lusts or passions. The Greek word is translated lust here. Uh, when we hear the word lust, we usually think sexual desire, but it means a lot more than just sexual desire, any kind of desire. His point is John Satanson's life is conformed, this verse says, or shaped or fashioned by his desires. So he goes to work because he desires to eat and he desires to have money so he can buy things. He may overeat because he desires to eat some more. It tastes good. He wants some more. He may start messing around with somebody else's wife and wind up getting a divorce, driven by his desires. He may be one of those people that drink too much. He may sleep in late when he needs to get up and start the day uh, because he has these desires to do this. It's just what he wants to do. Sometimes he may live a pretty respectable life and even attend church because he has a desire for others to think well of him. See, he's trying to impress other people in some cases, or maybe they got to get some prestige. He may go out and work in his yard. Why? Because he desires people to think well of him. He may spend money on entertainment because it's what he desires to do. He may buy a new car or a new home because he desires those good feelings that come when he buys something new or, or maybe the superficial prestige that these things can bring. People look at you in that new car and they say, wow, this guy's doing well. <laughs> he may wear certain kinds of clothes because he desires to be accepted by his peers and thought well of. Thinks he looked, everybody thinks he looks cool, right? That's his desire. He wants to look cool. <laughs> so the life of John Satan is dictated by his desires, doing whatever the strongest desire of the moment happens to be. And in verse 14, he says his life is fashioned, shaped by these desires in his ignorance. Now, suppose God sends one of us to John Satan's and, and we tell him about Jesus. And for the first time in his life, even though he may have gone to church for many, many years, he begins to understand that heaven is a free gift, that he is a sinner, that Jesus came to die for those sins on the cross, and he begins to understand what real saving faith is all about, what it means to become a Christian. Because God's working in his heart, you see, bringing conviction, giving him faith. And so for the first time in his life, he bows his head. He says, God, I'm sorry for my sin, and I'm through trusting myself. I'm going to trust Jesus. And he invites Jesus to come into his life as his Savior and his Lord. Now, he's a new man. God's received him into his family. Any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. We, we've got to change his name now. It's not John Satanson anymore. It's John Godson. So Jesus is in John now. And John is in Christ. And as the scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? I said it just a minute ago. He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. John is a new creature. He has a whole new set of godly desires. And he learns that according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, God says we are to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. John's been set free. 
of a life of living according to his own fleshly feelings and desires, those sinful desires. He's learning God's giving him a brand new set of desires. He's a new person. He's a holy man. <laughs> He's different. <laughs> He's been set apart. And while it's true that his old flesh still has desires that are ungodly and he has a battle on his hands, we all have to fight that fight. He has a deep fundamental desire that's far deeper than these sinful superficial desires, a deep fundamental desire to please his Lord Jesus Christ, to live in a way that Christ wants us to live for the glory of Jesus, for the glory of God. So he's different. He's different from the way he used to be. And it's different from the way most people around him live. He's holy, you see. So in verse 15, God says, be holy in all your conduct. In other words, in all that you do, you're doing it for a different reason. You may be playing ball, but you're playing ball for the Lord instead of playing ball for just your own selfish desires to get glory for yourself. You see what I'm saying? Wherever we are, at home, at work, at play, at school, at church, wherever we are, we're different. It's always a good idea to examine ourselves and ask Okay, Lord, I, I want you to help me think this through. I want you to help me see this. Just how different am I really? Am I really different? Is my life really all about you? Or am I just saying the right words to keep some people around me happy? When we get a genuine understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he's going to do in the future, life's going to be very different. It's not all about us anymore. It's all about him. He has made us holy. He has set us apart. He has made us different. And if we ever did happen to find ourselves before some military judge with a rifle in his lap determined to get rid of all the Christians, we'll be found guilty. <laughs> we may be thrown into jail. We may lose our jobs. There could be a time when we'd be executed. But we must remember this. This is so important. The day is soon coming. It's coming. It's soon when that secular military judge and every other human being ever born, including you, including me, will stand before the real judge, God himself. That's the judgment that really matters. Not some puny human self-proclaimed judge who can kill the body but can't do anything with your soul. Remember Jesus' words? Don't fear him who can only kill the body. And the God of the universe will look at all of us who are in Christ and say, because you trusted my son, you're mine. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You inherit the kingdom. And we will be glad with joy unspeakable and full of glory no matter what happened before that moment. <laughs> I want us to look at one more thing in this passage down in verse 23. There's so much we're skipping here. Wherever we go, whoever we meet, we learn that people have these desires we were talking about earlier. But they also have a desire for something deeper, if they think about it for a while. They want some significance. They want a full life, you know, a life that has some purpose to it. They may not quite understand all that means, but they're kind of desperately looking for something that will bring them fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning. We're all, we all want that. And, and because almost everybody comes to the point where they want that, you see people trying to take advantage of that especially people who know about advertising and marketing and whose livelihood depends on good advertising and marketing. So if you watch the commercials, you'll realize, oh, if I just drink the right kind of beer, I'm going to be happy. Look at how happy those people are. They're having so much fun. I'm going to be fulfilled. Or if I just go to vacation in the right state, 
or if I just sign up for the right dating service, or if I just enroll in the right weight loss program, or if I just buy the right exercise equipment, or if I just get the right automobile, or if I just secure the services of the right investment firm, or if I just buy the right clothes, or if I just eat at the right restaurant, and on and on and on it goes. And all these things are promising some kind of happiness, right? Some kind of fulfilled life. This is the key to fulfillment. Now, if you're a Christian, we know, of course, that ultimately these implied promises in the advertising industry are ultimately lies. There's a, there's a gigantic hoax being perpetrated that somehow we can find fulfillment and satisfaction in stuff, <laughs> in these experiences. But God, the one who made us, by the way, has revealed to us how we can find that kind of life that we're all looking for. And it's described right here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Look at this. Verse 23 says that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and the word is the good news that was preached to you. So here we find that the true source of real life is found in the Word of God. You say, I already knew that. Well, good. We're just underlining it. Verse 23, if we're in Christ, we've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Verse 25, the Word of the Lord remains forever. Notice he didn't say we're born again by the idea of God. It's the Word of God. There's a lot of controversy here, by the way. There are some people who call themselves Bible students. They call themselves theologians, but they've kind of let their human understanding take over instead of trusting God to help them understand things. And they concluded that God has, okay, God's revealed himself, yes, but he revealed himself to the men, and then they kind of had to use their own words to, to write it all down, what they experienced in this inspiration that God gave them. So they'll, they'll say, these Bible students will say that, well, some of the things in the Bible kind of point us to God, how God revealed himself to these people, but they don't see the Bible itself as God's revelation. But there's a huge problem with that because, because if God only inspired the thoughts of these men, you know what I'm talking about, men like Moses, Isaiah, Peter, Luke, John, Paul, all these guys, then we just can't be sure that the Bible reflects those thoughts accurately if God only gave them some kind of subtle spiritual inspiration and they try to write down their impressions of this revelation they received. Maybe they didn't say it right. Maybe they wrote down some misconceptions. Maybe they misunderstood God. These kind of Bible students, supposedly, I better put that in scare quotes, but they'd say, you got to try to figure out the, the thought that can't be expressed by the words. The problem with that is if you can't express a thought with words, you can't understand a thought, right? That's how God's given us the ability to understand things, through words. Yes, we can learn God's thoughts in the Bible, but his thoughts are expressed in words. So you remember what James said about faith and words? We could paraphrase that. I guess we could say, look, show me your thoughts without your words, and I'll show you my thoughts with my words. Without words... Thought is meaningless. <laughs> you can't really communicate it. So what we're saying here is the Bible is verbally inspired. Verbally inspired. Have you heard that phrase before? And, and by saying verbally inspired, we mean 
more than God just revealed himself to some men who had to kind of figure out how to say it on their own. We're saying God actually breathed out the very words of the scripture. The scripture itself is verbally inspired. The words are inspired. Now, watch out, because there's some guys who will say, wait a minute. When you say that, then you're just, you believe in mechanical dictation, that God just mechanically dictated what these guys would write down, and the prophets were not really, their personality doesn't come through. They're like stenographers or secretaries. They just wrote down what God dictated. And there may be parts of Scripture where that's true, but in general, that's not true. God's bigger than these scholars can wrap their minds around, because here's how he did it. When he planned from eternity past to give us, for example, the book of Isaiah, he planned for Isaiah to be born. He, he planned Isaiah's childhood. He planned Isaiah's training, his education, his life experiences. And God engineered his life so perfectly that when the time was right, and I'm not saying Isaiah was perfect. Isaiah sinned just like the rest of us. But he, he, his life was so put together so perfectly by God that it was time for Isaiah to write his own mind and heart. He wrote what God inspired him to write. So you see the personality and vocabulary of Isaiah. Oh, yes, you can tell that Isaiah writes differently than John, for example. But there's such an inner union of Isaiah and the Lord that what he wrote down was Isaiah's words. At the same time, they were God's words. And that's the way it is all the way through the Bible. It's a little bit analogous to Jesus being fully man and fully God. These men were writing their own words, but it was God inspiring them to write his word. And when some men want to say, no, God didn't really inspire the words. God just inspired the men who wrote the words. It's because they don't like all the words. See what I'm saying? They, they, some of the words, they don't, they don't like it. They want to do away with some of them. And it's easier for them to say, oh, oh no, those were not God's words. <laughs> those were Isaiah's words. Or those were Peter's words. Those were Paul's words. They're not God's words. They're just arbitrarily taking things out they don't like. Remember what God said to Isaiah? He said, I am the Lord your God, and I have put my words in your mouth. He didn't say, I put my thoughts in your mind, Isaiah. That's probably true. But he said, I put my words in your mouth. To Ezekiel, he said, go into the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. He said to Micah, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. To Jeremiah, he said, behold, I have put my words in your mouth over and over in the Bible. See words like this. The Lord has spoken. You see that many, many times, and then you'll have the words that God spoke. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And, and you'll see the words then that the mouth of the Lord spoke. The word of the Lord came to me saying, and then you read the words that God gave them over and over. Very common phrases in the Bible. In 2 Timothy, Paul says it was not just the men who were inspired, but the scriptures themselves were breathed out by God. Remember this, all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. The scriptures are inspired by God. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And all through history, there have been different people in the world who tried to stamp out the Bible that's going on now. It's been going on ever since it was written. Some of them have burned as many copies of it as they could. You know, Some of them have imprisoned people who had copies of it or killed people who had copies of it and taken them away and destroyed them. But all those guys are dead or they're dying. I guess some of them are doing it now. But God says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, His word is imperishable. It is incorruptible. It lives and abides 
forever. Nobody's going to destroy it. He also says here, it's alive. It's his living word that lives and abides forever. It's not just a record of what God said thousands of years ago, but although that's true, but since it's his living and eternal word, he's still speaking to us today through these very words where we are right now. So there may be lots of other interesting books in the world, and they may be worth reading. They may be valuable. They may get our attention. They may capture our imagination. But compared to God's word, they're dead words. <laughs> Some of you are old like I am, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You may have read the Gospel of John more times than you can count. You have no idea how many times you've read the Gospel of John. And every time you pick it up and you read it again, it's fresh. It's powerful. It's living. And God speaks fresh through these awesome words. Isn't it amazing? We've been reading it for decades. <laughs> His word is living. And because it's God's word, and because it's living, and because it's eternal, God has given His word the power to give us eternal life. Verse 23 says it's incorruptible seed which has begotten us. We're born again to eternal life. So God's word is the source of life, of meaningful, purposeful life, of eternal life. And again, in these verses, he reminds us of the brevity of life. He wants us to never forget that. He's done it already, but here's even clearer. All flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of grass. What happens to the grass? The grass withers, the flower falls. As I'm sharing these words with you right now, it's uh, late February in Teleco Plains. In a, in a few months, our yard here will be lush and green and growing with great vigor. It isn't right now, that's for sure. But there will be, uh, in a few months, there'll be flowers in the grass and different plants and shrubs around. But then you know what's going to happen to that, right? Just a few weeks later, <laughs> that grass is going to wither. Those flowers are going to fall. Everything's going to dry up look dead. These Christians that Peter was originally writing to were suffering. They had faith in Jesus, and they were suffering for their faith in Jesus. And Peter's saying, don't panic. Yes, you may die. <laughs> you may die for your faith in Jesus. That's not going to be a big deal. All flesh is as grass. Not just your flesh. Yeah, you're going to die. So are your persecutors, by the way. By the way, so are the presidents around the world. So are the kings around the world. So are the billionaires. So are the chairman of the boards. They're all going to die. Remember Alexander the Great? <laughs> Remember Nero? Julius Caesar? Hitler? Mussolini? Lenin? Stalin? Mao Zedong? Idi Amin? Saddam Hussein? They're all dead. Remember John Kennedy? Lyndon Johnson? Richard Nixon? Ronald Reagan? They're all dead. Peter, Paul, David, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're all dead physically. Some of you can identify with me today. I mean, people that used to be very much alive in my life and a very important part of my life, grandparents, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, all dead. Have you ever had to sit in an ICU or CCU waiting room for days on end waiting to see if a loved one is going to live or die? From time to time you see people sobbing, weeping. Sometimes you see a doctor come in with a grim look on his face, talks with the family. See the family weeping. 
all flesh is as grass. You and I will surely die physically. You ever hear of Richard Baxter? Richard Baxter was a great preacher in England in the 1600s. And what they said about Richard Baxter was he preached as a dying man to dying men. He seemed to have a very intense consciousness, a firm grasp on his own mortality. He knew he was dying. He knew only he had so much time. And he knew that was true of everybody else that was listening to him. They were dying too. It was a great tribute to Richard Baxter. I read one time about a preacher. This, this happened many, many, many years ago. But he had the opportunity to preach to a group of inmates in a prison. And before they came in, the preacher noticed that two of the chairs were draped in black. And he asked why. And he was told those chairs are assigned to two men who are to be executed. Your message will be the last one they will ever hear. You think that preacher just told a bunch of jokes? Tried to get them laughing? <laughs> no. He knew those men were close to eternity. And he urged them to trust Christ. That was their only hope. That's why Peter's emphasizing the brevity of life here in 1 Peter chapter 1. He wants us to think in terms of eternity. It's only through God's word can we, that we can prepare for eternity. And if you, or if I, or if anyone else wants to find real life, purposeful life, meaningful life, a life full of joy, a life full of happiness, I hope you know this. We won't find it in stuff, especially, you know, some people think they can find it in cigarettes or whiskey or the right car, or the right movie or the right house or even the right husband or right wife. No, 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 no. We'll find it in God's word, the imperishable, living, abiding word of God. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us your word today. Thank you for First Peter chapter one, thank you for using your man, Peter, to write these things down for us. And Lord, help us to keep our focus where you want it to be. Help us to realize how brief life really is. Help us to realize how quickly, how soon it's going to be that we're all standing before you. And Lord, we know at that point, we, 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 we don't have much trouble imagining how things of this life will seem so trivial Things that seem so important to us now will seem so trivial at that moment. So would you please help us get that perspective in our lives every day and to realize that stuff that a lot of people think really, really is important. Help us, Lord, to realize how trivial it may be in terms of eternity. Help us to learn to imitate Richard Baxter and, and talk to others as a dying man talking to dying men. Help us, Lord, to, to, to get as many people, use us, Lord, we pray, to get as many people prepared for eternity as possible. Help us to be sensitive to their eternal well-being. Lord, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.